Chapter 26 An Eye for an Eye and a Tooth for a Tooth In verses 38 through 42, we have our Lord's fifth illustration of the way in which His interpretation of the Mosaic Law is contrasted with the perversion of it by the scribes and Pharisees. With that in mind, the best procedure is perhaps to adopt again the threefold division of the matter which we have used in our consideration of some of the previous illustrations. The first thing, therefore, is to look once more at the intent of the Mosaic enactment. The Old Testament statement, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, is found in Exodus 21.24, Leviticus 24.20, and Deuteronomy 19.21. It was made to the children of Israel by Moses, and the important thing now is to determine why this was so. The same principle obtains as in the matter of adultery and divorce and in the taking of oaths. The main intent of the Mosaic legislation was to control excesses. In this case in particular, it was to control anger and violence and the desire for revenge. There is no need to elaborate this because we are all unfortunately familiar with it. We are all guilty of it. If any harm is done to us, the immediate natural instinct is to hit back, and not only that, but to do more than hit back. That is what men and women were doing then, and it is what they still do. A slight injury, and the man injured will have his vengeance, including bodily injury to the other. He might even kill him. This whole tendency to wrath and anger, to retribution and retaliation, is there at the very depth of human nature. Not only is nature red in tooth and claw, mankind is also. Look at children, for example. From our very earliest days, we have this desire for revenge. It is one of the most hideous and ugly results of the fall of man and of original sin. Now, this tendency was manifesting itself amongst the children of Israel, and there are examples of it given in the Old Testament literature. The object, therefore, of this Mosaic legislation was to control and reduce this utterly chaotic condition to a certain amount of order. This, as we have seen, is a great fundamental principle. God, the author of salvation, the author of the way whereby mankind can be delivered from the bondage and the tyranny of sin, has also ordained that there shall be a check upon sin. The God of grace is also the God of law, and this is one of the illustrations of the law. God will not only ultimately destroy evil and sin and all its works entirely, he is also, in the meantime, controlling it and has set a bound upon it. We find this working out in the book of Job, where even the devil cannot do certain things until he is given permission. He is ultimately under the control of God, and one of the manifestations of that control is that God gives laws. He gave this particular law, which insists that a certain principle of equality and equity must enter into these matters. So if a man knocks out another man's eye, he must not be killed for that. An eye for an eye. Or if he knocks out the tooth of another, the victim is only entitled to knock out one of his teeth. The punishment must fit the crime and not be in excess of it. That is the purpose of this Mosaic legislation. The principle of justice must come in, and justice is never excessive in its demands. 
There is a correspondence between the crime and the punishment, the thing done, and what is to be done about it. The object of that law was not to urge men to take an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth and to insist upon it every time. It was simply meant to avoid this horrible excess, this terrible spirit of revenge and demand for retribution, and to check it and hold it within bounds. But perhaps the most important thing is that this enactment was not given to the individual, but rather to the judges who were responsible for law and order amongst the individuals. The system of judges was set up amongst the children of Israel, and when disputes and matters arose, the people had to take them to these responsible authorities for judgment. It was the judges who were to see to it that it was an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth and no more. The legislation was for them. Not for the private individuals, as in the law of our land at this moment. The law is carried out by the magistrate or the judge, by the one who is appointed in the nation to do this. That was the principle, and it is a true picture of the Mosaic legislation itself. Its main object was to introduce this element of justice and of righteousness into a chaotic condition, and to take from man the tendency to take the law into his own hands. And to do anything he likes. As far as the teaching of the Pharisees and scribes is concerned, their main trouble was that they tended to ignore entirely the fact that this teaching was for the judges only. They made it a matter for personal application. Not only that, they regarded it in their typical legalistic manner as a matter of right and duty to have an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. To them, it was something to be insisted upon. Rather than something which should be restrained, it was a legalistic outlook which thought only of its rights, a kind of Shylock attitude. They were therefore guilty of two main errors at that point. They were turning a negative injunction into a positive one, and furthermore were interpreting it and carrying it out themselves, and teaching others to do so instead of seeing that it was something that was to be carried out only by the appointed judges. Who were responsible for law and order? It is in the light of that background that our Lord's teaching is given. I say unto you that ye resist not evil. Together with the further statements that follow, clearly we are face to face here with the subject which has often been debated, which has been frequently misunderstood, and which has always been the cause of much confusion. There is possibly no passage in Scripture which has produced as much heat and disputation as this very teaching, which tells us not to resist evil and to be loving and forgiving. Passivism is the cause of much wordy warfare, and it often leads to a spirit which is as far removed as possible from that which is taught and inculcated here by our blessed Lord. It is, of course, one of those passages to which people rush. The moment the Sermon on the Mount is mentioned, many people, no doubt, have been longing for us to arrive at this point, and now at last we have reached it. Yet nothing is more important than that we should have taken all this time to come to it, because as we have seen in these expositions, this kind of injunction can only be understood truly if it is always kept in its context and setting. We saw at the beginning that there are certain principles of interpretation which must be observed if we want to know the truth concerning these matters. We should remind ourselves of some of them now. First, we must never regard the Sermon on the Mount as a code of ethics 
or a set of rules to cover our conduct and detail. We must not think of it as being a new kind of law to replace the old Mosaic law. It is rather a matter of emphasizing the spirit of the law, so that we must not, if we are in trouble as to what to do at a particular moment, rush to the Sermon on the Mount and turn up a particular passage. You do not get that in the New Testament. Is it not rather tragic that those of us who are under grace always seem to want to be under law? We ask one another, what is the exact teaching about this? And if we cannot be given yes or no as an answer, we say, it is all so vague and indefinite. Secondly, these teachings are never to be applied mechanically or as a kind of rule of thumb. It is the spirit rather than the letter. Not that we depreciate the letter, but it is the spirit that we must emphasize. Thirdly, if our interpretation ever makes the teaching appear to be ridiculous or leads us to a ridiculous position, it is patently a wrong interpretation. And there are people who are guilty of this. The next principle is this. If our interpretation makes the teaching appear to be impossible, it also is wrong. Nothing our Lord teaches is ever impossible. There are people who do interpret certain things in the Sermon on the Mount in such a way, and their interpretation must be false. Its teaching was meant for daily life. Lastly, we must remember that if our interpretation of any one of these things contradicts the plain and obvious teaching of Scripture at another point, again, it is obvious that our interpretation has gone astray. Scripture must be taken and compared with Scripture. There is no contradiction in biblical teaching. Bearing all this in mind, let us consider what our Lord teaches. He says, I say unto you that ye resist not evil. They say an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. What does it mean? We must inevitably start with the negative, which is that this statement is not to be taken literally. There are always people who say, Now what I say is this, you must take the Scripture exactly as it is, and Scripture says, Resist not evil. There you are. There is no more to be said. We cannot deal now with that whole attitude towards Scripture interpretation, but it would be a very simple thing to show that if that is carried out in every respect, we should arrive at an interpretation which is not only ridiculous, but impossible. There are, however, certain famous people in the history of the Church and Christian thought who insisted on our interpreting this particular statement in this way. Perhaps no man has more influenced men's thinking concerning these matters than that great writer, Count Tolstoy, and he did not hesitate to say that these words of our Lord are to be taken at their face value. He said that to have soldiers or police or even magistrates is unchristian. Evil, he maintained, is not to be resisted, for Christ's way is not to resist evil in any sense. He said that the statement is not qualified, that it does not say that this is true only under certain special conditions. It says, resist not evil. Now policemen resist evil, therefore you must not have them. The same is true of soldiers, magistrates, judges, and law courts. There should be no punishment for crime. Resist not evil. There are others who do not go quite so far as Tolstoy. These people say that we must have magistrates and courts and so on, but they do not believe in soldiers, in wars, or in capital punishment. 
They do not believe in killing in any sense, whether judicial or otherwise. You are familiar with that kind of teaching and outlook, and it is part of the business of preaching and of interpreting the Scriptures to meet such an attitude when it is put forward honestly and sincerely. It seems to me that the answer to it is that we must remember once more the whole context and connection of these statements. This can never be emphasized too often. The Sermon on the Mount must be taken in the order in which it was preached and in which it is presented to us. We start not with this injunction, but with the Beatitudes. We start with those fundamental definitions and advance from them. We shall see the relevance of this later, but first we must deal with the paragraph in general. The first main principle is that this teaching is not for nations or for the world. Indeed, we can go further and say that this teaching has nothing whatever to do with a man who is not a Christian. Here we see the importance of the right order. This is the sort of way in which you must live, says our Lord to these people. To whom is he speaking? They are the people whom he has already described in the Beatitudes. The first thing he said about them was that they are poor in spirit. In other words, they are perfectly aware of their own utter inability. They are aware of the fact that they are sinners and are absolutely helpless in the sight of God. They are those who are mourning because of their sins. They have come to understand sin as a principle within them that is vitiating the whole of their lives, and they mourn because of it. They are meek. They have a spirit in them that is the very antithesis of the spirit of the world. They are hungering and thirsting after righteousness and so on. Now, these particular injunctions which we are studying are meant only for such people. We need not stress this point further. This teaching is utterly impossible for anyone who lacks such qualities. Our Lord never asks a man who is but a natural man, the dupe of sin and Satan, and under the dominion of hell, to live a life like this, for he cannot. We must be new men and born again before we can live such a life. Therefore, to advocate this teaching as a policy for a country or a nation is no less than heresy. It is heretical in this way. If we ask a man who has not been born again and who has not received the Holy Spirit to live the Christian life, we are really saying that a man can justify himself by works, and that is heresy. We are suggesting that a man by his own efforts and by putting his mind to it can live this life. That is an absolute contradiction of the whole of the New Testament. Our Lord established that once and forever in his interview with Nicodemus. Nicodemus was clearly on the point of asking, What have I to do in order that I may be like you? My dear friend, said our Lord to him in effect, do not think of it in terms of what you can do. You cannot do anything. You must be born again. Therefore, to ask for Christian conduct from an individual who is not born again, let alone a nation or a group of nations or a world of nations, is both impossible and wrong. For the world and for a nation and for non-Christians, the law still applies, and it is the law which says, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. These people are still under that justice which restrains and holds man back, preserving law and order and controlling excesses. In other words, that is why a Christian must believe in law and order 
and why he must never be negligent of his duties as a citizen of a state. He knows that the powers that be are ordained of God, that lawlessness must be controlled, and vice and crime kept within bounds. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Justice and equity. In other words, the New Testament teaches that until a man comes under grace, he must be kept under the law. It is at this point that all this modern muddle and confusion is entered in. People who are not Christian talk vaguely about Christ's teaching concerning life and interpret it as meaning that you must not punish a child when it does wrong, that there must be no law and order, and that we must first love everybody and make them nice. And now we are seeing the results. This is heresy. It is an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth until the Spirit of Christ enters into us. Then something higher is expected of us, but not until then. The law exposes evil and keeps it within bounds, and it is God himself who has ordained this and all the powers that be that are to enforce it. That is our first principle. This has nothing to do with nations or so-called Christian pacifism, Christian socialism, and things like that. They cannot be based on this teaching. Indeed, they are a denial of it. That was the whole tragedy of Tolstoy, and alas, poor man, he himself became a tragedy at the end when he faced the utter uselessness of it all. That was quite inevitable from the beginning, as he would have seen had he truly understood the teaching. Secondly, this teaching, which concerns the Christian individual and nobody else, applies to him only in his personal relationships and not in his relationships as a citizen of his country. This is the whole crux of the teaching. We all of us live in different realms. Here am I, a citizen of Great Britain, with my relationship to the state, to the government, and to other such organizations. Yes, but there are also certain more personal relationships. My relationship to my wife and children, my relationship as an individual to other people, my friendships, my membership of the church, and so on. All these are quite apart from my general relationship to the country to which I belong. Now here, I would repeat, our Lord's teaching concerns the behavior of the Christian in his personal relationships only. Indeed, in this saying, the Christian's relationship to the state is not even considered or mentioned. Here we have nothing but the reaction of the Christian as an individual to the things that are done to him personally. With regard to the Christian's relationship to the state and his general relationships, there is ample teaching in the Scriptures. If you are anxious about your relationship to the state or your attitude as a citizen, do not stay with the Sermon on the Mount. Rather, go on to other chapters that deal specifically with that subject, such as Romans 8 and 1 Peter 2, so that if I, as a young man, am considering my duty to the state in the matter of going into the forces, I do not find the answer here. I must look for it elsewhere. This is only concerned about my personal relationships. And yet, how often, when a man's duty towards the state is being considered, this passage is quoted. I suggest it has nothing whatsoever to do with it. The third principle which controls the interpretation of this subject is, clearly, that the question of killing and taking of life is not considered as such in this teaching, whether it be regarded as capital punishment, or killing in war, or any other form of killing. 
Our Lord is considering this law of the Christian's personal reaction to the things that happen to him. Ultimately, of course, it will cover the whole question of killing, but that is not the principle that he puts in the forefront. Therefore, to interpret this paragraph in terms of pacifism and nothing else is to reduce this great and wonderful Christian teaching to a mere matter of legalism. And those who base their pacifism upon this paragraph, whether pacifism is right or wrong, I'm not concerned to say, are guilty of a kind of heresy. They have dropped back into the legalism of the Pharisees and scribes, and that is an utterly false interpretation. What, then, is taught here? Surely there is but one principle in this teaching, and that is a man's attitude towards himself. We could discuss the Christian in terms of the state and war and all these things, but that is something very much easier than that which the Lord Jesus Christ asks us to face here. What he asks you to face is yourself, and it is very much easier to discuss pacifism than to face his clear teaching at this point. What is it? I suggest that the key to it is to be found in verse 42. Give to him that asketh thee, and from him that would borrow of thee, turn not thou away. That is most important. As you read this paragraph, your first feeling when you come to verse 42 is that it should not be there at all. Ye have heard that it hath been said, an eye for an eye, and a tooth for a tooth. But I say unto you, that ye resist not evil. That is the theme, resisting evil, and therefore these questions of war and killing and capital punishment seem to arise. But then he goes on to say, But whosoever shall smite thee on thy right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if any man will sue thee at the law, and take away thy coat, let him have thy cloak also. And whatsoever shall compel thee to go a mile, go with him twain. Then suddenly give to him that asketh thee, and from him that would borrow of thee, turn not thou away. And at once we feel like asking, what is this question of borrowing to do with resisting evil and not hitting back, or with fighting and killing? How does this come in? There we are given a clue to the understanding of the principles our Lord is here inculcating. He is concerned the whole time about this question of the self and of our attitude towards ourselves. He is saying, in effect, that if we are to be truly Christian, we must become dead to self. It is not a question of whether we should go into the army or anything else. It is a question of what I think of myself and of my attitude towards myself. It is very spiritual teaching, and it works out in the following respects. First, I must be right in my attitude towards myself and the spirit of self-defense that immediately rises when any wrong is done to me. I must also deal with the desire for revenge and the spirit of retaliation that is so characteristic of the natural self. Then there is the attitude of self towards injustices that are done to it and towards the demands that are made upon it by the community or by the state. And finally, there is the attitude of self to personal possessions. Our Lord here is unveiling and exposing this horrible thing that controls the natural man, self, that terrible legacy that has come down from the fall of man and which makes man glorify himself and set himself up as a god. He protects this self all along and in every way. But he does it not only when he is attacked or when something is taken from him. He does it also in the matter of his possessions. 
If another wants to borrow from him, his instinctive response is, why should I part with my goods and impoverish myself? It is self the whole time. The moment we see that, there is no contradiction between verse 42 and the others. It is not only a connection, it is an essential part of it. The tragedy of the Pharisees and scribes was that they interpreted an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth in a purely legal manner or as something physical and material. Men still do that. They reduce this amazing teaching just to the question of capital punishment or whether we should take part in war. No, says Christ in effect, it is a matter of the Spirit. It is a matter of your whole attitude, especially your attitude towards yourself. And I would have you see that if you are to be truly my disciples, you must become dead to yourself. He is saying, if you like, if any man would be my disciple, let him deny himself and all his rights to himself and all the rights of self and take up the cross and follow me.